So good evening. It's really always wonderful to come back here. Um, God, I feel like you guys are so far away. <clears throat> I should get you up here a little closer. Um, the thing that has changed since the last time I saw you is that I now have to have reading glasses on top of my contacts. So <laughs> age is a wonderful thing. So we have a bit of an echo here. Okay. Um, I was uh, given an opportunity to choose which of the practices I wanted to talk about tonight in your series. And I really wanted to do mindfulness and work because uh, I am still a lay teacher and work 80% time as a little uh, private school, alternative education school in Menlo Park called Peninsula School, and I am the school's librarian. And uh, so I read out loud about four hours a day, and I have children from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, ranging from age three to 14. And uh, it's a very energetic environment. (laughs) So, uh, and then on top of that, uh, I have my meditation group, and that takes a lot of time as well. So balancing uh, our lives, uh, our practice, not as something separate from our daily life, but as something completely integrated into it, uh, has really been the focus of my practice since I started in 1984. And it seems like that was just yesterday. It's just astonishing how this time thing goes by. But. So I want to start with a quote um, from Suzuki Roshi. He said, Meditation practice and everyday activity are one thing. We call meditation everyday life and everyday life meditation. But our usual thinking is, ah, now meditation is over and I can go back to my everyday activity. (laughs) But this is not right understanding because they are actually the same thing. We have nowhere to escape. I I love that. In that last little line, I remember when I first read it, it really caught me. I thought, nowhere to escape, whoa. But the more you think about it, I, I think when we first come to practice, we do have this tendency to say, okay, this is my practice, and on you know, Tuesday nights I'm going to come and do this, and, and maybe on Saturday mornings I'm going to do that, and, and then I'm going to go to the store, and oh, I have to get gas, and I've got to go pick up the kids. And, and these are like all the little pieces of our pie. And depending on how many pieces of pie we've got, we cut up the pieces thinner and thinner and thinner. But what we don't understand is practice is not a piece of the pie. Practice is the pie plate. It is what holds, it is the foundation that keeps the pie together. If your thinking of practice is just another piece of your pie, there's nothing to support it. So... Practice is the pie plate that supports all those pieces of pie that you are eating along the way. 
So this nowhere to escape, though, comes up all the time. Because we start to get this idea in our head. <clears throat> I had some students, actually, at one point. I, every time something came up in their life, oh, well, you know, as soon as this is done, we'll be coming to practice. And then a month or two would go by, well, oh, we've just got to get that new irrigation system in before we can come to practice. And, oh my goodness, you know, there's something wrong with um, the job and I'm just so booked. And, you know, I'm as soon as I get these particular cases done, we'll come to practice. And I finally said to this one person, I said, you know, it's my experience that... <clears throat> As soon as I get something done, something else pops up. And if you're waiting for all these things, to all your ducks to finally be in a row, you'll be lying on your deathbed before you start to practice. Because this is life. This is our normal life. Life is just one thing after another. You get this project done and something pops up over here and you think you've got everything under control. And the next thing you know, the sink in your guest bathroom is all stopped up and got to deal with that. And the next thing you know, you know, there's always something. So I know a very old friend of mine who had been practicing for many years shared this story that, especially for our generation, we get caught between our children and our parents now and in terms of taking care. And she is in a situation <clears throat> where, as the elder sister in the family, the eldest child, uh, the care of their father fell on her to a large degree. And she said that even after years of practice, she kept saying, okay, well, when, when dad has stabilized, I'll, I'll be able to sit again. When dad has gone through this procedure, I'll be able to sit again. And she kept doing this until finally she realized, I have to sit in the middle of all of this happening, or I can't actually be there for him. And then she kind of went, duh. (laughs) What took me so long to figure this out? You can't have the deferred life plan. It has to happen now, in the middle of all this mess. Human life is just one giant mess. And it's a joyous mess, and it can be really a lot of fun, but it's pretty messy. But in the middle of it, we're working. In the middle of it, we're raising our family. And in the middle of it, we're saying goodbye to loved ones. Just this last week, I had to say goodbye to my 19-year-old puss. And it's a very big hole to have to say goodbye to an animal that has you know, been with you that long and has outlived two other animals in your house. But this happens. And this is part of our life. And you don't say, well, you know, when my cat has finally died, then I'll sit. No. To truly experience death and dying and life and all the chaos means to sit in the middle of it. 
There is no escape. There is no escape from sitting down and doing this practice except all the excuses that we come up with. And they are excuses. We can rationalize them or make them pretty in whatever way we want. No, no, I'm too busy right now or I've got this tremendous tragedy or crisis or whatever. But actually the truth is you will do, you will be clearer. You will be more present in the middle of all that mess if you do this practice regularly. You will go to work and you will be more efficient, kinder, clearer. You will be a better worker. You will be a better co-worker. Things will run smoothly that day that you actually took the time in the morning to sit. But, okay, what gets in our way? Because it always does. Some of it, I think, is that it is so ingrained, we don't even see it. So, not this last September, but the September before, I was very fortunate to be on the two-week retreat with Gail Fransdahl at Hidden Villa. And on... The second day of the retreat, you know, everybody's beginning to come down. <clears throat> and uh, we're in the hostel section of, the, of, the, um, of Hidden Villa. And we were having lunch, silent lunch. And I had gone out and I was sitting on a bench. And you're kind of up above at that point and you're looking down into the little common garden. When I notice a bunch of young children being toured around, basically. And the teacher in me is thinking, thinking, (laughs) oh, isn't that adorable? How cute they all look. And then, you know, so I'm mindfully eating very quietly, and every now and then I look up, and then I begin to look a little more closely, and then, wait a minute, I know those children. (laughs) They were from my school. I, could, I didn't even know they were going to be there. It's like, oh my goodness, that's Matthew. <laughs> it was the second grade class from my school. And it was as if all my little energy went straight to that kid. Because at that moment, he turned. And he began to point. <laughs> and I went... <laughs> and it was so... I mean, in his little seven-year-old mind, I don't know what he thought, but he went... but what I didn't realize is this was only half the class I wasn't really counting and all of a sudden from the barn which is further up the way the other half of the class is roaring down they're just running and so happy and as they go running by one of them looks up and says is that Misha? Hi Misha! (laughs) This is a silent retreat we're in right? But I have to say, it was the sweetest thing. And tears came into my eyes. Because one of the things I had told Gil the very, like the day before, when we first started, was that I was thinking about how am I going to continue to work almost full time at school and lead this other sangha. I mean, you know, it's 70 hours a week. It's going to get... I'm going to get too old for this one of these days soon. And he said, well, 
why don't you just sit through the retreat and see what arises? And what arose was tears and the thought of, how could you even imagine not working there for, for the time being? These are your teachers. And it is really true. So I was able to immediately just let that rest and come back and continue for the rest of the two weeks and get quieter and quieter. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was my first Vipassana retreat. I've done a gazillion Zen retreats, but it was pretty great. I have to tell you, you guys are onto something. (laughs) But when I floated back into school two weeks later, my last interview with Gil, I said, all right, so you keep talking about, you know, relaxed breathing. And I am really calm right now, and I am so quiet. I, I can't remember the last time I felt this quiet. And now I have to go back to school where it is not quiet. My library, I mean, I know you have some idea of what a library is. That's not my library. My library is a noisy, vibrant place where the kids come roaring in at 90 miles an hour and are so excited to see the books, to see me, to hear the story, to jump on the sofa. And, and it's noise all day long. And joyous noise. I mean, happy. I'm not complaining about it. It's just it is noisy. It is not the library that you sit in doing research. But I said, so how am I to do this? And he said, well, you know, there's really nothing for which you should sacrifice your relaxed breathing. I said, but Gil, I sacrifice my relaxed breathing there all the time. All right, so scene change. I arrive at Peninsula School the very first day, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, how are you going to do this? Hey, let's give it a try. So it turns out my assistant had taken my two weeks, and the only problem she had during the entire time was with my fourth graders. I've never had trouble with my third or fourth graders, but she said they were rude in the extreme, actually, which is very surprising, maybe because she was my assistant, I don't know. But at one point, I guess, she kept trying to tell them to be quiet so she could read, and she'd have to stop, and and at one point, I guess, she moved a couple kids, and that actually made it worse, and finally, the kid who was really causing a lot of difficulty, she said, you know, If you continue, I'm going to have to send you back to the class. And he said, okay. So then she had to do it because he called her bluff. So when I got back, I heard about this and I thought, all right, how are you going to follow Gil's instruction? So they all came in. And I said, so I understand we had a little difficulty here. You were really the only class that Elena had any problems with. And gee, I'd really like to talk about that because, um, you know, this is something we're doing together. 
And when I'm reading out loud, and if you're making a lot of noise or you're fidgeting, whatever, it's like I'm making a movie in your brain. And every time I have to stop, the movie goes... So here's the deal. It's about consequences. And they're good consequences. Anybody, anybody know what the word consequences mean? One kid raises his hand. Oh, that's what happens when you do something bad. <laughs> I said, well, it's a little more complicated than that. But then another kid, he could have been a little Buddhist, he says, no, consequences are just what happens when you do anything. <laughs> exactly. So it could be a good consequence or a bad or an indifferent. So we used an ice cream cone as the example. You know, what would be the good consequences of getting an ice cream cone? What would be the bad? They were great. They came up with all kinds of stuff I hadn't even thought of. I said, so it's just like that here. So here's what's going to happen. We'll be coming in here and you'll be choosing books and then we'll come and sit for the story. And if you start talking or fidgeting or punching each other with your elbows or whatever it is you're doing, if it's distracting, I'm not going to ask you to stop and I'm not going to move you and I am definitely not sending you back to class. I'm just going to sit here and stop reading and enjoy my breath. They work like a charm. (laughs) For two years I have been doing this. I have not had one problem with this. I just stop, close the book, and begin to breathe. Because I will tell you there's nothing more boring than watching someone else meditating. Now, I know this is all very amusing, and it was very amusing to me, but it was also a mind-blowing experience because I have been teaching almost 20 years and had never realized this, that when I came in with all my energy, that what I was doing was pumping them up. So, of course, they got even more energetic. As soon as I brought it back down and went into my relaxed breathing, So did they. (laughs) Now, I'd been teaching meditation a long time. But in my mind, somehow, I had still very subtly separated out what I knew to do in meditation and what I did in work. It has changed the way I teach. It has changed the way I teach my Zen students, too, but it has definitely changed what I do at work. So, I've thought of all the things that get in our way of taking our meditation practice to work, and they are, what I'm really talking about is practice as a seamless activity that every single thing in your life is practice from using the toilet to arranging the altar to sitting in front of your computer to opening a door it's just all meditation mind 
But there are many belief systems that get in our way of this. And one of the first and really insidious ones is the, what I call, not my job, not my problem. So I was just leading a retreat at Vajrapani this last weekend. And we were the only people in the meditation hall. And there's two bathrooms associated with it. And on the second afternoon, I walk in. And there's the toilet paper roll. And it's empty. And there's the toilet paper sitting on the back of the, of the sink. And no one has put it in. It's like, hello. <laughs> why did, if you were the one that used it last, why would you not think to replace it? Because it's not my problem. We, we cannot have this idea. Everything is your problem. Because if it is really true that there is no such thing as a separate, independent, vacuum self, which clearly is not the case because we're all breathing the same air right now, then it is also the case that everything involves you and you are involved in everything. Whether it is changing the toilet paper or uh, the man who rides up Route 84. I live at the top of 84 off of uh, Skyline Boulevard. And there is a man who used to be a professor at Stanford. He rides his bike up every single day, except maybe when it's pouring rain. I've never seen him in the pouring rain. And he stops like every five feet to collect trash. He doesn't live up there. He doesn't live on 84. It's not his problem. But this is his practice. And if anybody has ever ridden their bike up 84, you know the last thing you want to do is stop. <laughs> but to me, that man is a bodhisattva. He is doing what's in front of him. Oh, trash. And I mean, literally, he has a bag always on the handlebars of his bike. This is what he does. Because he does not have that belief system. It, It is his problem. It is his joy. So Suzuki Roshi said that another problem that we often have, and and this cuts across all forms of spiritual practice, is a gaining idea. He said, usually when you do something, you want to achieve something. You attach to some result But our effort should be directed from achievement to non-achievement, which means get rid of the unnecessary and bad results of effort. If you do something in the spirit of non-achievement, then there's a good quality in it. So just do it without any particular effort. That's enough. So what's this extra that gets in our way? Competition pride in our job, jealousy of another, envy, control, it's my job, insecurity, oh, it's my job and you're taking it away from me. (laughs) See, what you do may be good, but the extra element becomes the problem. 
Then another thing that gets in our way is what I call the, the loss of our beginner's mind. A lot of us probably do repetitive things in our work. There are certain things you have to do every day in your job. And um, when there's repetitive activity or we get to know our job too well, we start slipping into complacency. And then we're not really paying attention anymore. (laughs) So last summer, I was at Tassajara with several of my students. And after the morning sitting, you're asked to do a small job. It's called Soji, which is about 10 minutes. Then you go off and get ready and you come back for breakfast. Sometimes Soji is just raking the gravel. Sometimes it's cleaning in the meditation hall. But several times while I was there, I was asked to go work in the kitchen. And usually that's just a very quick kind of prepping job, chopping up something that's going to be used for later in the day. So on this particular morning, uh, because I've got all these robes I've got to take off, I was the last person of the crew in the kitchen to arrive. And we were in the center of the kitchen. It's this enormous kitchen. It's as big as this room. And there's a big wooden cutting area in the center for chopping. And by the time I arrived, there were all these platters of um, acorn squash that had been baked the day before, so they're all soft inside. And big tubs, you know those, those white buckets that like wall mud comes in? Well, when you're serving 60 to 100 people a day food, that's how much you're making, you know, buckets worth. So what they were asking us to do was to scoop out the inside of uh, the squash and put it in these buckets. So by the time I got there, there was a woman there and a woman there and my senior student across from me, and then I walked in. And I saw what they were doing. I picked up my spoon, and here's what they were doing. Scoop, thunk, scoop, thunk. Scoop, thunk. Now, this is a very quiet kitchen because you're not supposed to be talking. You're supposed to be paying attention to what you're doing. So my student had come and seen the woman over there doing that. So she picked up her spoon, thunk, thunk. So, like a sheep, I saw what she was doing and said, oh, scoop, thunk. Until finally, the assistant cook in the kitchen came over and very quietly said, would it be possible for you to use a different spoon to pull it off your spoon so you don't have to go thunk? <laughs> Ooh. We have to pay attention. Our job is not just the job. It's about how to do it harmoniously. How to do it in a way that both gets the job done, brings beauty to the practice of doing it, and includes everyone. So the poor people in the other part of the kitchen who were doing other things, I mean, imagine for them, every 15 seconds, thunk, (laughs) thunk. It's not a pretty sound, you know, metal on plastic. But we were all paying attention to what the other person was doing and never thought about it. Even I never thought about it. I just, oh, that's what they're doing? Okay, I'll do it too. No beginner's mind anymore. 
You have to watch out for repetition. Then there's the problem of not following through. Okay. In everything that we do, whether it's work in front of a computer or we're at home taking care of the kids or we're teaching or we're doing therapeutic work, in every single thing you do, there is a beginning, a middle, and an end. The end may not be the actual end end. It just may be the end for the day or the end for that time. But in our work, if we can remember this beginning, middle, end idea, when we first come to whatever task we are to do, first we take a breath. Ah, Ah, I'm about to begin to scoop the squash. Maybe we bow if we're working with a group and take the time to acknowledge the other people in the group to divide up the tasks if they need to be divided up, but mostly to acknowledge each other. Then there's the middle, and that's actually doing the job. Now, had I done the first thing when I arrived at that long board and taken a breath, I would have thought to myself, boy, this sound is really killing my ears. And maybe I wouldn't have done it too, but I didn't. I just stepped right up and started right in the middle of the task. So start at the beginning. Take a deep breath. Before you turn on your computer, if you have a computer at work, before you start your email, whatever it is, before you begin to wash the dishes, take the extra second that would be required to take a breath and mindfully bring yourself to the task. It'll be much easier to stay with the task then. So then you actually do the task as mindfully as possible. And then at some point, the task will come to an end. Either you run out of time, which often is what happens for most of us. It's just the end of the day, and that's that, whether our task is complete or not. But maybe your task actually is finished during the day. But at some point, you need to come to some resolution. So again, if you have co-workers, you find a way to come together and acknowledge that you are now finished. You put your things away. You thank each other for a job well done. Or maybe you offer some advice about what has to happen the next day. But you thank each other. Take another deep breath and know that now you are finished. Total completion will keep you in this moment. Beginning, middle, end. All right. Then there's this thing I think of as the microcosm versus the macrocosm. Partly, this is about paying attention to what's in front of us. But sometimes we get so focused on what's happening in front of us, we lose all sight of the big picture. This happens at work a lot. So there's this great story in a book about a a master when he was a young Zen student. This is a true story. 
he came to a temple where there was, he was really the only student. So, of course, he was at his master's beck and call all the time. And his master had uh, kind of a growly voice, so that even when he was just saying good morning, it always sounded like the monk was getting scolded. So one morning, he, he calls him, you know, uh, forgotten what his name is, uh, but uh, I think it's Murasaki. Murasaki-san! Hi! And he's sure he's done something wrong already. He says, uh, go to my room. Uh, there's something I want you to see there. Now, it's first thing in the morning, and he's figuring, oh, my goodness, what have I already done wrong, you know? So he rushes off to his master's room that he has cleaned the day before, and and he's looking everywhere, and he's just sure he's missed something and that the master has noticed, and he's going to really get it. And he looks, and he looks, and he can't see. There's no dirt. The tatami are clean, and the, the walls are spotless, and keeps looking because he knows there must be something. Finally, he just he can't find anything. He goes back to his master. Master says, well, did you see it? No, master, I, I really looked, but, but what did I do wrong? Wrong? Who said anything about you doing something wrong? I wanted you to know the be- notice the beautiful rose of Sharon in the altar space. He hadn't even seen it. And he goes back to the room, and there's like an alcove that has a beautiful scroll in it, and right at the base is this enormous white rose of Sharon. It's just glowing. When he finally looks to see, it's just like, how could he possibly have missed it? He missed it because he was doing this. He could only think about what his concern was and had forgotten the big picture and how often do we do this. I can remember as a little girl when my mother would get really upset because we had done something that she considered very dangerous and she'd get really angry. And I... I, would be scared to death of her being so angry. But I realize now it was because all she could think about was all the bad things that might have happened. And her relief was so great that the only thing she could do then was get angry. (laughs) (laughs) So, So we forget to have that bigger picture of, oh, I'm so relieved you're all right, but you know, please don't do that again. Keeping that bigger picture of, hey, the bad thing didn't happen. Then there's the inattention. That one was the inattention to what is in front of us. But then there's the inattention to who is in front of us. How many times have you been speaking to someone when you notice suddenly that their eyes are kind of wandering around Or you can see, it's like written across their forehead, they're thinking about what they're going to say back to you. (laughs) They're not listening to you. They're either wandering around thinking about something else, or they're already thinking about their reply, so how can they possibly be listening to you? And 
How many times are we guilty of that ourselves? The person who is in front of you at that moment is the most important person in the world. I just heard something last night. Apparently some woman at a Stephen Levine lecture, Stephen Levine is the one who lectures about death and dying a lot, was going on and on and on about trouble she was having with her children. You know, it was a question and answer session. On and on she went. And finally she stopped and said, so what should I do about them? And he said, hmm, you should think of your children as dead. Everyone in the audience kind of gasped. And he said, that way you will really be grateful for their life. Everybody who is in front of you, no matter how irritating, no matter how provoking, no matter how angry, is still the most important person at that moment because they're standing in front of you. I had something happen a couple of weeks ago with a fellow teacher who was so angry and upset about something and he thought that this committee that I was on was responsible for his frustration and he came into the library in a captive audience because that's where I work, right? And just laid me out. And I was shocked because this person and I have been friends for a long time and I just, I kept saying, it's me, it's Misha, your friend. Why, why are you so angry with me? It's, yeah, I'm on that committee but I think you're misunderstanding something but just, and finally I kept saying, you're, you're feeling, it's feeling very personal. Why are you, it's me. Hello. The good news is, you know, I'm somebody who's been working with anger for a long time, and I didn't get angry back. I, I was confused and bewildered, and I've heard a lot later, but I didn't get angry. And so I was able to stay there with this person and just, you know, come on, this is me. This is, this is us. You know, give me a chance here. We'll work this out. And the person just... It was just so angry. And it had never happened between us. And I was just like shocked. I was in a state of shock for the rest of the day. But I went home, and my husband was out of town. And when he called that night, I said, oh, boy. You know, there's the good Zen students over here going, I know it wasn't personal. I know it was just because he was so angry and frustrated. I know it wasn't personal. And there's this part of me that hurts so much because he's my friend. My husband says, listen to voice number one. (laughs) So I did. And I kept listening and I kept thinking, all right, now tomorrow, whether you want to or not, you're going to be seeing this person because you guys have a staff meeting. What are you going to do? Because he might not apologize. He might think he had every right. You just don't know. And I thought, you know what? I forgive him already. I have to. He's, we've been friends for 20 years. And, and I understand why he's so upset. I do. I get his anger about this situation, even though I don't feel like it's my fault, but okay. So I, I kind of just made myself ready for anything, whatever happened. If he apologized, fine. If he didn't, that would have to be fine too. And the next morning, I'm in the library before my kids come, and this person comes in. It's like, <laughs> head down looks up, touches his heart, looks at me pleadingly. 
and I went up and I, I and he said, I wasn't angry at you. And I said, I know, but it hurt. I know. <laughs> and then it was all gone. But that's the person, no matter how upset they are. People are going to be upset with you at work. Things are going to happen. You have to bring your practice to that too. To the person who is standing in front of you. Completely. Bring yourself, vulnerable and all. Because actually there is no you for them to hurt. So I got a little caught. It was good to see that I got caught. It was also good to see that I could see it and do something with it and not hold onto it. Because the other part of our work life is that there are often misunderstandings and miscommunications with the people we work with and we hold onto them. So remember, Suzuki Roshi said, when you listen to someone, you should give up all your preconceived ideas and your subjective opinions. You should just listen to her or him. Just observe what her way is. We put very little emphasis on right and wrong or good and bad. We just see things as they are with her and accept them. This is how we communicate with each other. So remember, now meditation is over and we're just going to go around about our everyday activity. But your everyday activity is meditation. Take it with you to work. Take it with you to your children. Take it with you to your parents. Take it with you on vacation. Because I'll tell you, I was away for about a month in New Zealand this last year. And it's very amusing. You can't get away from yourself, you know. And you you think you're going on vacation, you're just going to have this blissful time and everything is going to be wonderful, and then it doesn't quite turn out that way, and that's because you're there. (laughs) So if you can not see it as a bunch of pieces of pie, see it as one long, continuous pastry... Practice has no beginning, and it has no end. If you can remember that it is seamless, then everything that happens every moment is a meditation. And you will find probably that the river flows a little easier that way. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.